Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This was supposed to be a political episode since, well, it's been a month since the last one, and I'm doing my research on the Brazilian Latvians for the future, but in the end it turned out to be one of those mixed episodes, since this will touch both the current events and, well, quite a lot about the Soviet past. You see, recently, Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov and a journalist from Philippines, Maria Ressa, were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for 2021. Thing is, although it's well-deserved that someone from Novaya Gazeta, from the newspaper of Anna Politkovskaya, and an opposition journalism newspaper in general, actually receives the Nobel Peace Prize, as they had been nominated for six years already, although everyone really expected Alex Navalny to get the Peace Prize this year, since his poisoning and him being, well, you know, in prison for all this time. However, Alexei Navalny himself got awarded the Sakharov Prize for Freedom of Thought by Europarliament. I'll get to these events, but this makes no sense if you don't understand who even Andrei Sakharov was, because even though European Union gives out a prize in his name, he also is a famous Soviet dissident who himself received this Nobel Prize for Peace. So, both of these events are tied together quite a lot. There's a tendency for the Nobel Committee to give out peace prizes for dissidents in various countries. In some cases they go well, in some cases, well, not so much. One year the European Union even got the peace prize as an organization for basically preventing war for 50 years. Then Obama got the peace prize for things that he promised to do that never really panned out And then there was this lady from Brunei who turned out to be, well, quite a pickle, so to speak. And apparently she's out of her arrest there and uh, in the government and not doing nice things, so to speak. It's all a bizarre mess now and then. So this whole peace prize, specifically peace prizes, a bit strange, but what can you do? I mean, after all, the Nobel Prizes were invented by the man, Alfred Nobel himself, and it was all written out as his last will, so 
yeah, you know, you can't really affect them. Strangely enough, talking about the Nobel Prizes while we get to today's subject matter is the fact that, well, he hated biology, so if you're doing something in the sphere of biology as a scientist, then they always have to be squeezed inside of the fields of, say, physics or medicine or something like that. And the same with mathematics, although mathematics isn't, well, really a hard science, not in the classical sense, it doesn't predict anything. That's kind of an interesting sidetrack, but we'll get to who Sakharov was... Why did he get the Peace Prize? And what does the Peace Prize and, well, Sakharov Prize even mean? And what do these people have to say about this? Because for us here in Eastern Europe, if someone even close to us gets one of these prizes, it's a, it's a huge honor, really. And also kind of makes you think about the general attitude towards Russia and what's happening there if finally people are getting these prizes. But before we get on to that, I would like to give out a massive shout-out to Twilight Histories podcast, hosted by my friend Jordan Harbour, which I was lucky enough to actually meet in person while I was visiting Canada. He's our great-grandfather of Dark Myths, which is, well, sadly, less active as it used to be, and he's making this excellent Twilight Histories podcast, which is all about alternate history scenarios and everything that could happen told from a certain perspective of the people involved there. It's a great show and you should really check it out because, well, I should have probably plugged him a while ago since, well, he's a good friend of mine and he's taken care of his family and I enjoy his show a lot, but health issues happen and whatnot, so I'm giving a double here since, really, in case you wanted to listen to something awesome and cool and highly recommended by me, And by the way, uh, in some of the episodes a couple of years ago, I even helped write the script and stuff. So go check out Twilight Histories. Uh, It's one of my favorite shows. And as I see on Twitter, everyone is just constantly asking, oh, could you recommend a new show to me? Hey, if you're not a listener of that already, please go out and give Twilight Histories a listen. And hey, if you comment on his Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, then, well, let Jordan know that the Eastern Border sends their regards maybe without the creepy Russian accent and, uh, you know, the analogies of the KGB. But yeah, this is this is going to be a bit of a Twilight history-like episode in itself, since we have things that tie together, and I really can't position this episode as being either purely political or purely historical for that matter, since, as usual, whenever I try to make something clear-cut and sometimes even optimistic, yeah, things don't turn out as planned often in the eastern border. So here we go. Andrei Dmitrievich Sakharov was born in May 21st, 1921 in Moscow, Russia, and died again in Russia on December 14th, 1989. He was a Soviet nuclear theoretical physicist and an outspoken advocate of human rights, civil liberties, and reform in the Soviet Union. And also, he wanted to do a lot to kind of encourage working together with the non-communist nations. He was awarded his Nobel Peace Prize in 1975. However, of course, that too was tied with controversy. Sakharov was born into Russian intelligentsia. His father, Dmitry Sakharov, taught physics at several Moscow schools and institutes and wrote popular scientific works and textbooks. He was a man of principle. He had enormous effect on his son and you have to admit that Andrei Sakharov was definitely a patriot of his country. Despite his criticisms, he really loved the Soviet Union. He felt like that was his motherland, and he wanted to take care of it. He wanted to improve it, no less. His mother, Yekaterina, remained at home and took care of the family. 
Andre was tutored at home for several years and entered school only at the fall of 1933. His exceptional scientific promise was recognized quite early and in 1938 he enrolled in the physics department of Moscow State University. After the outbreak of World War II in June 1941, while well, with Germany in that case, because the war had been going on since 1939, but after the Germans attacked the Soviets, Sakharov failed a medical exam and, well, being found unfit for military service, in October he and his fellow students were all evacuated to Ashgabat, which is now in Turkmenistan, where they resumed their studies and graduated the next year. He contributed to the war effort by working in the laboratory of a munitions factory in Ulyanovsk. While he worked there, he met one Klavdia Vikreva, and they got married in July 1943. This marriage lasted until her death in 1969, and they had three children together. In 1945, they returned to Moscow, where Sakharov began his graduate work at the Lebedev Physics Institute of the Soviet Academy of Sciences. His mentor was one Igor Tam, and, well, Sakharov, being an exceptional student, earned his doctorate in two years. In June 1948, Tam was appointed to head a special research group at the Institute to investigate the possibility of building a thermonuclear bomb. Sakharov joined Tam's group and, with his colleagues Vitaly Ginzburg and Yuri Romanov, worked on calculations produced by Yakov Zeldovich's group at the Institute of Chemical Physics. This whole discovery of, of these ideas behind the thermonuclear bomb, or hydrogen bomb, went through several stages, because Sakharov was instrumental in this whole creation of the Soviet nuclear bomb, and specifically the hydrogen bomb. Later in 1948, Sakharov proposed a design in which alternating layers of deuterium and uranium are placed between the fissile core of an atomic bomb and the surrounding chemical high explosive. This scheme was analogous to American physicist Edward Teller's alarm clock design, and it was called Sloika, or layered cake, as it's translated. And Sakharov referred to it as the, quote, first idea, end quote. Sakharov credits Ginzburg for the second idea. In 1949, Ginzburg published reports proposing substituting lithium deuteride for the liquid deuterium. When bombarded with neutrons, the lithium yields tritium, which, when fused with deuterium, generates a greater release of energy. And three seconds in, we're talking about nukes. Amazing. In March 1950, Sakharov arrived at the so-called installation, known at that point as KB-11 and later Arzamas-16, located in what became the secret Soviet city of Sarov. The work there, in KB-11, had begun three years earlier to develop and produce Soviet nukes. And, well, members of both of the groups of these scientists also went there to work on the thermonuclear bomb. This layer cake model, small and light enough to be deliverable by airplane, was detonated on August 12, 1953, with a yield of 400 kilotons. Sakharov was rewarded with full membership in the Soviet Academy of Sciences at the age of 32. What I am doing at the age of 32? Well, making a podcast and then, in my day job, producing ads. This guy is inventing nuclear bombs. Yeah, sadness. Sadness sets in. Moral is falling. And, uh, yeah, he was given the privileges of the nomenclatura. Or, you know, the party higher-ups. And although this whole 1953 was a massive milestone in development of these bombs for the Soviet Union, this was not based on the most advanced principles and, of course were continued. Sakharov assumed the duties of the theoretical department at the installation after his mentor returned to Moscow in 1953. 
The following year, there was a conceptual breakthrough to develop high-performance thermonuclear weapons. The third idea, on which Sakharov said he was one of the originators, was a modern two-stage configuration using radiation compression, which was, again, analogous to the successful design of the American physicists Teller and Stanislav Ulam. On November 22nd, the Soviet Union, in 1955, successfully tested the design in a thermonuclear bomb detonated over the Semipalatinsk test site. In the late 1950s, Sakharov became concerned about the consequences of testing in the atmosphere, foreseeing an eventually increased global death toll over time. After years of attempts at private persuasion, in 1961 Sakharov went on record against Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev's plan for an atmospheric test of a 100 megaton thermonuclear bomb, because he was truly afraid of the hazards of massive fallout everywhere. The bomb was tested at half-yield, 50 megatons, on October 30th, 1961. And through these efforts, Sakharov began to adopt extremely strong positions about the social responsibilities of scientists, especially in the Soviet Union. In 1964, Sakharov mobilized, successfully no less, opposition to the spurious doctrines of the, well, quite still powerful at the time, Stalin-era biologist Trofim Lysenko. Lysenko, if you remember from our episode on the computing history, well, uh, he had some um, strange ideas about how genetics was a false science and how nothing really worked there. It was time to push him away from the sphere, after all, if the Soviets wanted to see some real progress. In May 1968, Sakharov finished his essay, Reflections on Progress, Peaceful Coexistence and Intellectual Freedom, which first calculated as copies in the Samizdat circles. Well, they got smuggled to Italy, and through there, they were being published in the West. First of all, in the New York Times and elsewhere, beginning in July. Sakharov, warned of grave perils threatening the human race in general, called for nuclear arms reductions, predicted and endorsed the eventual convergence of communism and capitalism systems in a form of democratic socialism, and criticized the increasing repression of Soviet dissidents. From this point, until his death, the father of the Soviet thermonuclear bomb, became more politically active in support of all this human rights movement and various other causes. Of course, as a consequence for this, he was banned from pursuing further military work. And also for this, in 1975, Sakharov was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace. The Nobel Committee that year noted, Sakharov's fearless personal commitment in upholding the fundamental principles for peace between men is a powerful inspiration for all true work of peace. Uncompromisingly and with unflagging strength, Sakharov has fought against the abuse of power and all forms of violation of human dignity. And he has fought no less courageously for the idea of government based on the rule of law. In a convincing manner, Sakharov has emphasized the man's inviolable rights, provide the only safe foundation for the genuine and enduring international cooperation. Now, obviously, the Soviet government reacted with extreme irritation and prevented Sakharov from leaving the country to attend the Nobel ceremony in Oslo. Sakharov's Nobel lecture, Peace, Progress and Human Rights, was delivered by Yelena Banner, a human rights activist whom he married in 1972. And here is what I actually want to give you, this whole speech, because this kind of matters a lot, really. Hello there, thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at russansov.com. 
If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code Eastern Border for a discount on us. Remember, head over to rusensoft.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! Quote, I am here today because due to certain strange characteristics of the country whose citizens my husband and I are, my husband's presence at the ceremony of the Nobel Peace Award turned out to be impossible. Today, in fact, he is not here, but in Vilnius, capital of Lithuania, where the scientist Sergei Kovalev is being tried. Due to those same strange characteristics, which made it impossible for Sakharov to be in Oslo, He's at present near the court building, not inside but standing out in the street in the cold for the second day, awaiting the sentence against his closest friend. But in spite of all of this, Sakharov believes that the Nobel Peace Award ceremony, whose name by itself has such a deep symbolic and a human meaning, must take place, and the words which he meant to say here should also be heard. This is the reason why he asked me to read to you his address. I am very grateful and very proud. I am proud to see my name placed together with the names of many outstanding people, among them Albert Schweitzer. Thirty years ago, nothing but ruins were left of half of my country and half of Europe. Millions of people mourned and still continue to mourn their dear ones. For all those who went through the experience of the most terrible war in history, World War II, the conception of war as the worst catastrophe and evil for all mankind has become not only an abstract idea, but a deep personal feeling. For the basis for one's entire outlook on the world. To keep one's self-respect, one must therefore act in accordance with the general human longing for peace, for true detente, for genuine disarmament. This is the reason why I am so deeply moved by your appreciation of my activity as a contribution to peace. But what made me particularly happy was to see that the committee's decision stressed the link between defense of peace and defense of human rights emphasizing that the defense of human rights guarantees a solid ground for genuine long-term international cooperation. Not only did you thus explain the meaning of my activity, but also granted it a powerful support. Granting the award to a person who defends political and civil rights. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. against illegal and arbitrary actions means an affirmation of principles which play such an important role in determining the future of mankind. For hundreds of people, known or unknown to me, many of whom pay a high price for the defense of these same principles, the price being loss of freedom, unemployment, poverty, persecution, exile from one's country, your decision was a great personal joy and a gift. I am aware of all of this, but I am also aware of another fact. In the present situation, it is an act of intellectual courage and great equity to grant the award to a man whose ideas do not coincide with the official concepts of the leadership of a big and powerful state. This, in fact, is how I value the decision of the Nobel Committee. I also see in it a manifestation of tolerance and of the true spirit of Dantant. I want to hope that even those who at present view your decision skeptically or with irritation some day will come to share this point of view. The authorities of my country denied me the right to travel to Oslo on the alleged grounds that I am acquainted with the state and military secrets. I think that actually it would not have been difficult to solve this security problem in a way acceptable to our authorities, but unfortunately this was not done. I was unable to participate personally in today's ceremony. I thank my friends who live abroad and who honored me by being my guests here. I had also invited friends from my country, Valentin Turchin, Yuri Orlov, and two of the most noble defenders of the cause of justice, legality, honor, and honesty, Sergei Kovalev and Andrei Tverdokhlebov, both of whom are at present in jail awaiting trial. Not only the latter two, but none of them could come. In the USSR, when it comes to obtaining a permit to travel abroad, there is not much difference between their respective stations. Still, I beg you to kindly consider all of them my official guests. I would like to end my speech expressing the hope in a final victory of the principles of peace and human rights. The best sign that such hope can come true would be a general political amnesty in all the world, liberation of all prisoners of conscience everywhere. The struggle for a general political amnesty is a struggle for the future of mankind. I am deeply grateful to the Nobel Committee for awarding me the Nobel Peace Prize for 1975, and I beg you to remember that the honor which was thus granted to me is shared by all prisoners of conscience in the Soviet Union and in all other Eastern European countries, as well as by those who fight for their liberation. This speech is important to me because when I hear hardcore tankies speaking about utter nonsense about the glories of the Soviet Union, then I would like to remind to them that this man is literally the father of the Soviet thermonuclear bomb. He's not some sort of a dude who didn't experience difficulties. No, no, no. He worked on this whole affair in 1948 in Stalin's era. He lived through World War II. He knew how, how to be patriotic. If you look at it from perspective, he was probably among the most patriotic Soviet men there ever was. He knew what the country needed. He was not a bad person, or a Stalin's by any means. This man would look at today's posts on various social media praising the Soviet Union for everything glorious and great 
when stating that Stalin did nothing wrong and whatever, and that, that everything was perfect with utter disgust. The man himself who invented the Soviet thermonuclear bomb was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Think about it. And his speech is a testament to the fact that, no, no, everything was not fine, and, and people just post messages glorifying Stalin and then Brezhnev and Khrushchev and just state that, well, the only issues were in, in the perestroika and Gorbachev messed everything up. Yeah, I would be extremely happy if you would give them this speech, maybe. But of course, this is not the end of the story for Mr. Sakharov. Sakharov and Bonner continue to speak out against Soviet political repression at home and hostile relations abroad, for which Sakharov was isolated and became the target of official censure and harassment. In January 1980, the Soviet government stripped him of his honors and exiled him to the closed city of Gorky, which is now Nizhny Novgorod, to silence him following his open denunciation of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and his call for a worldwide boycott of the coming Olympic Games in Moscow. That was episode 6, by the way, of our show. Really old. I should probably redo that one sometime. In 1984, Bonner was convicted of anti-Soviet activities and was likewise exiled to Gorky. In 1985, Sakharov undertook a six-month hunger strike, eventually forcing the new Soviet leader, our good old friend Gorby, Mikhail Gorbachev, to grant Bonner permission to leave the country to have a hard bypass operation in the United States. During her six-month absence, she also met with Western leaders and others to focus concern on her husband's causes, and she wrote a book about it, entitled Alone Together. Several months after she rejoined her husband, Gorbachev released Sakharov and Bonner from their exile, and in December 1986, they returned to Moscow to face a brand new Russia. The final three years of Sakharov's life were filled with meetings with world leaders, giving various interviews, traveling and a lot of renewed contacts with his scientific peers, and, of course, writing of his memoirs. In March 1989, he was elected to the first Congress of People's Deputies representing the Academy of Sciences. Sakharov, at the end of his life, had his honors restored, received new ones, and so many of the causes for which he fought and suffered become actual policy of the Soviet Union. Now, current times might be different, since, after all, we have a new laureate of the Nobel Peace Prize, Dmitry Muratov, and the Euro Parliament gives out Sakharov Prizes now. For Sakharov was truly influential. So how does Sakharov's achievement of receiving this Peace Prize and how the Sakharov Prize tie in to what's happening in the world today? As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, Dmitry Muratov, the editor-in-chief of the independent Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta, the new newspaper, won this year's Nobel Prize, sharing the award with Maria Ressa, the CEO of Rappler, a news outlet critical of Philippine President Rodrigo Duarte's anti-drug campaign. Ressa and Muratov were honored for their courageous fight for freedom of expression in Philippines and Russia. The Norwegian Nobel Committee credited Ressa with using freedom of expression to expose abuse of power, use of violence, and growing authoritarianism in the Philippines, and recognized Muratov for, quote, decades of defending freedom of speech in Russia under increasingly challenging conditions. They are representatives of all journalists who stand up for this ideal in a world which democracy and freedom of the press face increasingly adverse conditions. 
which is how the Nobel Committee explained in its prize announcement. Muratov himself says the award belongs first and foremost to his deceased colleagues. He's promised to use his $595,000 prize money to assist a federal foundation that funds treatment for children with spinal muscular atrophy, an organization that Novaya's Gazeta's reporting has, by the way, criticized in the past for incompetence. However, they still do a noble thing. And he wants to support journalism in Russia generally, including help for reporters who have been designated as foreign agents. Muratov stated that, quote, we will bear the weight of this award on behalf of Russian journalism, which now faces enormous pressure. He added, too, that Nova Gazeta's newsroom will make the final decision on how the prize money is distributed. Thing is, Nova Gazeta has quite a large study with death. Because, well, freedom of the press is a major concern inside of Russia. After all, hey, that's one of the reasons why, for example, I no longer can enter Russia. See, in 2000, Nova Gazeta journalist Igor Domnikov was killed by several men wielding hammers. A year later, journalist and activist Viktor Polkov, who also wrote for the newspaper, died in Chechnya during an artillery attack. In 2003, Nova Gazeta deputy chief editor Yuri Shlekochilin died from a mysterious illness that resembled poisoning by radioactive materials. Three years later, Anna Polyutkovskaya was found shot dead in the elevator of her apartment building. In 2009, freelance correspondent Anastasi Baburova was shot and killed together with human rights lawyer Stanislav Markelov, who provided legal services to the newspaper. That same year, human rights activist and Nova Gazeta collaborator Natalia Istirminova's body was found in the woods of Ingushetia, riddled with bullets. Over the years, there have also been several attempts on the lives of other journalists at Nova Gazeta. So, this, this is um, quite important, really. Because a lot of people have died, a lot of people have suffered for all of this. And even though Tikhanovskaya, the Belarusian opposition leader who also kind of won the elections in August there, and Navalny were nominated, after six years of being nominated constantly, Novaya Gazeta finally won it. Although there were issues with various things, as people really thought that Navalny should get it or anything else should get it, I think this is. This is well done, because Muratov has done quite a lot for freedom of speech, really. At the same time, Echo Moskvy, a radio which I listen to a lot, deputy chief editor Vladimir Varofolyemev worries that the Nobel Committee's prize money could constitute formal grounds to declare Nova Gazeta for an agent. On the other hand, the New Times editor-in-chief Yevgenia Albats has argued that the prize actually protects Muratov's newspaper against government pressure. Albats also stated that she hopes the prize becomes a kind of defense for Russian journalists who are being declared foreign agents and members of undesirable organizations en masse. Which is, well, exactly what happened to my colleagues at Medusa. The Kremlin congratulated Muratov on the award. Quote, and they <laughs> can't read this without an ironic tone, really. He's been working tirelessly according to his own ideals and he's committed to his own ideals. He's talented and brave. This is, of course, a high distinction. Vladimir Putin's spokesman Dmitry Peskov told journalists on Friday. At the same time, Peskov was unable to say the president would congratulate Muratov personally. Russia's new Nobel laureate has already received congratulations from Russia's Prime Minister, United States Secretary General, Russian Account Chamber Chairman, and many others. But again, he was not considered one of the main contenders. Well, he was quite angry, really, about 
this whole situation, because he got a lot of flack for it, for unknown reasons, because, well, Navalny's people are... Well, he's in the opposition, but you always have to remember that he has his own authoritarian streak. And after getting a bunch of hate comments, like a lot of them, as I listened to this interview and it was truly weird, and and a lot of these people really were complaining that this award didn't go to Navarny. However, Muratov is well-deserved this prize. Yeah, it angered Muratov to the point where he even spoke in Echo Moscow in the interview that, am I to blame for the award going to Novaya Gazette, not Navarny? Up yours! He told listeners who have been pummeling him for, for hours at this point because, hey, I don't blame him. I don't blame him being, being mad. Muratov's award, of course, well, no surprises there, managed to disappoint a lot of pro-Kremlin journalists as well, of course. Television pundit and Russia Shevodnya, state news agency head Dmitry Kiselyov stated that, quote, The Peace Prize is one of the Nobel Committee's most controversial categories. Decisions like this one devalue the prize itself, and it's already hard to make sense of it. Russia Today editor-in-chief Margarita Simonyan, who's uh, in my eyes a non-journalist and, uh, excuse me for saying this, but a complete piece of trash, congratulated Muratov but said she preferred to imagine that he received the prize because of his active and passionate assistance to sick children and not for the usual. The usual being criticizing Putin, of course. This is quite telling. However, Navalny himself got an award this year. Saharov Prize. See... Saharov Prize, like I told you before, is the Euro Parliament's European Prize for freedom of speech and committing to freedom of thought and, and just doing everything you can for humanitarian goals. Parliament President David Sassoli, and I hope I pronounced his name correctly, stated that, quote, The European Parliament has chosen Alexei Navalny as the winner of this year's Saharov Prize. He has campaigned consistently against the corruption of Vladimir Putin's regime, and through his social media accounts and political campaigns, Navalny has helped expose abuses and mobilize the support of millions of people across Russia. For this, he was poisoned and thrown in jail. In awarding the Sakharov Prize to Alexei Navalny, we recognize his immense personal bravery and reiterate the European Parliament's unwavering support for his immediate release. And this is the thing. This prize is the European Union's highest tribute to human rights defenders. However, I do have to state that other Russian opposition party, Yabloko, who has been controversial lately, their representative sent a letter to Europarliament stating that Navalny is not allowed to receive the prize because of, again, his authoritative streaks and the fact that he um, kind of doesn't want to solve the Crimean thing in an easy way. And the Crimean thing... The pause is the best way how I could explain this. Navalny himself, from prison, wrote an answer to this whole situation. He cited journalists, lawyers, officials and people who take it to the streets to denounce corruption in his dedication. It was posted on Twitter, probably by his wife. Well, because she can actually contact Navalny somehow. In his account was written, I wish them perseverance and courage, even the scariest of moments. And uh, he added, when people like these receive awards, everyone always say, this is great honor, and this is true. But I feel that this is not only an honor, but also a great responsibility. See, Navalny, the most prominent foe of Russian President Vladimir Putin, was nominated alongside Afghan women, together with Janine Agnes, a Bolivian politician who became interim president in 2019. Or Agnes? Or Agnes? I'm not really sure how to pronounce this correctly. He became interim president in 2019 after alleged electoral fraud by Evo Morales. 
Agnes was later arrested for allegedly plotting a coup d'etat against Morales. This is kind of crazy. This whole prize was set up in 1988 to honor individuals and organizations defending human rights and fundamental freedoms. It's a 50,000 euro award and it's a big thing in this region. Makes you think. I still don't know whether or not Sahara would approve of all these ideas, but it kind of makes you think that one of the biggest things happening in modern-day Russian politics, awarding a prize that Sakharov got, and awarding a prize in Sakharov's name. And what exactly does it mean, really? Because Nobel Prize has one condition, Sakharov Prize has another conditions, and I think Sakharov would be a bit disappointed that right now people are giving a prize named after him in Russia for actions in Russia once again, because that just kind of shows that Maybe his own priest prize was sadly not enough to end the cycle of Eastern European depression. But we're still full with optimism and hope, because, you know, we here in the post-Soviet sphere, we're tough people. And I suppose that was everything that I wanted to say to you today. Bit of food for thought. Don't forget to check out Twilight Histories. And до свидания, товарищи. Remember, happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. On Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Happiness is mandatory.